now from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. Amen. Thanks for waiting, kiddos. Can head on down. Um, I thought we were going to trick them this morning by me not coming up first, and they, they were smarter than me. My name is Ernie Wagoner. I'm the lead pastor here at Sojourn. If I haven't had the privilege to meet you yet, I would love to do so before we head on out of here. Um, appreciate that reading this morning and the songs that were sung. I have a few housekeeping things before we jump into Matthew 1. If you care to know where we're going, it's Matthew 1. Um, three things for you. The first is that uh, little do you know that while we sit in this room, there are some outside of this room that are building a Ziada shop for us to partake in uh, momentarily. And so just wanted to invite you to that. We uh, will be uh, having an opportunity to uh, purchase wonderful gifts, pillows, blankets, aprons, and so forth. You guys tired this morning? It's, this is a quiet crowd. This is good. Um, more work for me. I might have to take this jacket off in a minute when I start sweating. Um, but we have a Ziada shop for, for us to participate in. This would be an opportunity that we can invest in a roundabout way with our cross-culture workers uh, in, in Putna, India. And so that'll be after our gathering. Uh, you can go grab something for your, your, your mother or maybe your neighbor or maybe yourself. And so that would be the first thing for you. Ziada Shop, uh, coming, coming in hot right after this gathering. Um, the second thing is um, we want to just constantly try to provide support, uh, resources for families within our community. Uh, and so uh, what my wife and I do, which is not what you need to do, but we try to create space over the weekends um, to kind of hone in as a family around Advent. So we'll read a scripture, we'll, we'll talk about that scripture, we'll light a candle and drink hot chocolate together. Uh, and so I just want to provide this for you. If you're like, I love that idea, but I don't know what scripture to read, well, low-hanging fruit for you, what was just read over last week, this week, and the next few weeks, you could literally just take that. Your kids were so distracted, none of them knew what was being read, and you could reread that with them tonight or maybe next weekend or whatever uh, to just create some margin, that this would be uh, a sacred space for us as a family. just want to provide a low-hanging fruit opportunity for you families to be able to partake in that. Uh, and then the last thing we do, which is pretty irregular, but um, wanted to do this as we close out the year, wanted to just speak related to uh, giving within our community. This last year, I've been 
humbled yet again by the generosity of our community that we have here at Sojourn. And so because of the, the green edition that took place, because of some significant security, little you know, there's a little eyeball right here, and little eyeballs all over the facility that help protect and make sure that we are a secure facility, especially for our kids. We've invested into those things over this last year. And so our, our hope is that we uh, pay off any remaining debt as a community by the end of next year. So a year from now, our hope would be that we pay off uh, our remaining debt. And, and so not to, to boast, but that's a, a very rare reality for a, a church to have no debt. And we're aiming to, to do that over the next year. And that's, we've stumbled into that. That wasn't our strategic 30-year plan. We had this moment where we merged with this beautiful uh, almost a company, um, didn't mean to, this beautiful church called Paper Mill Road Baptist Church, and they had a paid-for building as we merged, and so that fast-forwarded the process for us, um, and so we, ha- we have this privilege where we're, in the near future, going to be able to be thinking about some kingdom things that we just haven't been able to, be able to do some things we haven't been able to do, uh, leaning into church planning and, and local and global partners in a way that we haven't been able to, and so as we close out the year, if you are, if you are not giving and you're a part of our community, I don't know who you are. I don't know who gives what, and I plan to never know that. But if, if that's you, and, and I would encourage you to take a step. And that step doesn't mean you have to go from 0% to 10% of your gross income. I'm not looking at that at all. But a step for you might just be moving that needle forward. I'd, I'd invite you into that space. And if you're here and you have uh, margin to give, you're actively giving, you have margin to give at the end of the year, I mean, I, I would invite you to, let's get after paying off this debt quick, and let's get after seeing... Uh, us be a part as a community in the advancement of the kingdom in a really beautiful way. And so you can do that through sojournonline.org slash giving. That should be the URL potentially up there. Uh, But just wanted to provide that to you as we close out the year. Sound good? Cool. We are in week two of Advent. Um, Did some research this, this past week on Advent. The first writings of Advent in church history were in the fourth century. So many moons ago. Um, and in the, in the 300s AD, there was a council that took place around that time where there were some first writings around Advent. So it's been around for a minute. And in this time, in, in the heartbeat of Advent, there were kind of two things that we've learned throughout church history about Advent. The first is that it's kind of made up of four weeks leading up to, to Christmas. And, and the first two of those four, two plus two, four, so the first two of those four really focused and honed in on the second advent of Jesus. Advent means coming or arrival. And so there was an emphasis on the first two weeks of the, the second advent of Jesus. In the latter two weeks, there was a focus on the first coming, the first advent of Jesus. And so they would separate kind of this, in this time, these two themes of kind of looking forward and longing and anticipating and, and the reality that there are things that God promised that have still yet to be fulfilled. And so as followers of Jesus, we lean in and we recognize that the best days are still to come. We lean in with hope and expectation and even have spaces of repentance and confession to, to posture our hearts in that way. The, second ad, uh, the first advent emphasizing the fact that God has made promises and he, and he is extremely faithful and Emmanuel has come. And I think along the way, Advent has kind of been relegated to simple reflections on, 
on what has happened and maybe sometimes can lose that second Advent piece, which is so important for us. And so this morning, we're going to be considering uh, the second advent of Jesus a bit more and in a roundabout way through the, the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 1. So last week, Wesley uh, introduced our, our Advent season and he talked about the weight of waiting, talked about the significance of waiting. And I want to piggyback off of that and just say, Wesley, thank you, brother. I always appreciate when you share truly. Um, so in this second uh, Sunday of Advent. I'm going to take us to the beginning of the gospel and allow these first 18 verses to propel us to long for the Messiah. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. You guys ready to read? Good? Okay. Matthew 1, verse 1. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So we begin this, this gospel, first of four, by this guy named Matthew. We know a good bit about Matthew. He was a, a tax collector, and his heart was melted by the mercy of Jesus in a powerful way. We see his life uniquely impacted by the mercy of Jesus. He was rejected by everyone. He was a, a traitor to the Jewish community as a tax collector, And he was a puppet of the Roman government. And yet Jesus, by his mercy, called him to himself. By his grace, drew him in as one of his 12 disciples. And he begins the very beginning of his gospel. And the literal first few words that we read are actually translated the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis. It's comparable to that of the first words of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word. But Matthew writes to a Jewish Christian community. And he says, in the book of Genesis, he is signaling to the reader, to the audience, a new creation is now taking place. The dawn of a new day has occurred. Like Wesley talked about last week, there was 400 years of silence. And he's saying, a new day has dawned, and God has not, he's not forgotten his promises. So out of the gate, in these first, this first verse, he, he, he drops the names of some pretty significant people uh, to the Jewish Christian community. These, these three names are Christ, son of David, and son of Abraham. Let's spend a few minutes there. And this matters to us, as so many of God's promises are tethered to these three names. The first name is Christ. This, this is not Jesus' last name. You might be shook right now. My name is Ernie Wagoner. Jesus' name is not Jesus Christ, okay? He is Jesus who is the Christ. There's a difference. So we translate in our translations, oftentimes we hear Jesus Christ. So his last name, Mary's last name must have been Christ. And so because, or was it, was it Joseph? Who, whose last name was Christ? And so it's, it's not like that, okay? It's not, it's not his surname for me, again, Ernie Wagner, for Jesus. It's Jesus who is the Christ. It's bland to us, but to the readers, this is powerful. This is an evocative title that they are very familiar with. Christ or Messiah was a title referring to the long-awaited deliverer of God's people. So when we read Jesus, who is the Christ, Matthew is pointing to something much greater than his last name. And he's pointing to the fact that this is the long-awaited king that throughout all of history, 
God's people have been waiting for and anticipating that he would come. We'll get more into that in a minute. So Jesus, who is the Christ, the second son of David, that matters to the audience that's reading this. A covenant was given to King David, a covenant that was echoed throughout the pages of the Old Testament, a covenant of promise that God would again bring forth the Messiah, but not just any any Messiah, a Messiah that would come through the lineage of King David. A few verses for you. It's important, I mean, Wesley did this some last week, I'll do it some this week, to, to recognize that this isn't just some random assortment of, uh, uh, that's led us to where we are today. Like, God has been strategic and has made promises and has delivered on those specific promises, and it causes the beauty of Jesus to be even more profound. And so if you go to 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 8, uh, here we go. Now, therefore, thus, so this is Nathan the prophet speaking to David, the king. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Fast forward to 12. When your days are fulfilled and... You lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. Everybody say that word, forever. And your house, verse 16, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So again, there's significance here. Through David, this king will come one whose kingdom will be everlasting, will never end, will last forever. We can fast forward. There's so many other verses, a few others for you in the prophets and and Jeremiah. We see in Jeremiah 23, verse 5, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. This is past David. He's now dead. This is past Solomon. He's long and gone. And yet the prophets declare there's one coming through the lineage of David who's going to bring this forth. We'll fast forward to Luke chapter 1, verse 32, contemporary of Matthew. He says, He will be great and we be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Lastly, Jesus himself in Revelation 22, verse 16, it says this, I, Jesus, one of some of his last words, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. So from the Old Testament into the New Testament and everywhere in between, we hear this promise of one coming through the lineage of David. So when Matthew sits and he writes this gospel, he includes the significance that Jesus, who is the Christ, is the son of David. He also says he is the son of Abraham, the father of Israel, The one who God called out, whose name was Abram, he changed to Abraham. And through him, we see 
that all the nations would be blessed. In Genesis 12, 2, it says, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Through Abraham will come forth a nation. And then he fast forwards to verse, uh, chapter 22, verse 18. It says, And your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So this great patriarch, Abraham, was given this promise that he would bring forth a nation. And ultimately, that nation would bring forth the blessing upon blessings, this Messiah who would come and fix this world. So in this sentence, in Matthew 1, verse 1, if we can be honest, we've, we fast-forward this whole genealogy. And for some of us, the gospel of Matthew begins in verse 18 when cute baby Jesus shows up, right? And so we, we can fast-forward the genealogy, which has such meaning, the importance for the audience to hear that the book of the Genesis, the, the book of Genesis, Jesus who is the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, had such profound meaning. His point is this, the long-awaited deliverer, the king that's been promised throughout the Old Testament, guess what? He's arrived. That's what Matthew is trying to communicate to us. In this renewed uh, beginning, Jesus, who is the Christ, who is the son of David, the son of Abraham, the long-awaited one has come. And he continues by, by, um, in the preceding preceding verses, to, to survey the history of the people of God. And to, and to communicate the buildup to the coming of the Christ. And so in the following verses, we, we read of a genealogy. Let me give you a little clarity on this. Because uh, some of us, again, we begin at verse 18. You might have never read the genealogy before. So we're going we're gonna to look at some of it. I'm not going to read all of it because, frankly, I don't want to get embarrassed by not knowing all of these names. Um, I already have a hard enough time uh, with, with some more basic words, uh, how much more some of these kings. Uh, and so in Matthew 2, 1, 2, verse 2 through 17, he lays out the history of God's people in three distinct periods of time. And he lays it out as follows. The, the first several verses are uh, Abraham to David, 14 generations. And I'm going to explain 14 in a minute. The second is David to the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And lastly, the exile to Babylon to the coming of the Christ, 14 generations. So why 14? That's obviously like significant in what, but it seems like it's significant in what Matthew is saying. Some would say that this is symbolic, um, they would say that there's three 14s, and if you divide 14 in half, that's six sevens, and seven is a complete number, and so the seventh of sevens is the complete of the complete, and so Jesus is the complete of the complete. I mean, you can go there. I don't think that Matthew is explicitly saying that. Uh, there's some silence there, so if that means something to you, that's fine, but I would propose this, that this is not a statistical observation. What we'll find is that actually Matthew misses and skips out on certain generations, So this is not a statistical observation, but instead a theological reflection on the working out of God's purpose through God's people. So he's using a a symmetrical pattern, uh, allowing us to understand the monarchy and how that led to the coming of the king who is the Christ. And so the listeners, uh, Matthew is saying that God has set the stage for a dawning of a new day, and God has worked throughout history, and the Messiah has come. And so in the following verses that we'll, uh, I'll read some of, we read a number of names. You'll know some of them. You might not know others. And so we see, again, the first segment, Abraham to David. 
and verses 2 through 6. There's a seven to 800 year gap between the names of Abraham to David. That's a significant period of time. But again, Abraham was given a promise. Through Abraham, all of the families of the earth would be blessed. And so we, we read some of these names. I'll, I'll read them to you. This will be the only section I read all of because they're just a little bit easier to read. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of I had this this morning, Aminadab, there it is, it's just hard being up here, the spotlight, the the Britney Spears mic, it just can be tricky, Uh, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, which is tricky, you want to say Salmon, but you've got to be careful there, Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, we'll stop there. So there's, there's some mention here that's pretty significant of four mothers, which matters, uh, none of which are Jewish, which matters, because this is written to a Jewish Christian audience, all of which had a checkered past by proxy and even some scandal. All four of them, again, non-Israelites, Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites, Ruth, a Moabite, and Bathsheba, the wife of a Hittite. Again, each of their stories were not comfortable for this audience to read sexual brokenness in all of their pasts. Tamar's seduction of her father-in-law, Rahab was a prostitute, and as we learned this summer as we went through First uh, and Second Samuel, Bathsheba was a victim of sexual abuse through King David, each of whom God saw, each of whom God didn't overlook, and each of whom God used to bring forth His redemptive plan. And so uh, Matthew is 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 recognizing that there's going to be some uh, social difficulties in the story of Jesus's mother, and so he's wanting to set the stage that throughout history God has used broken scenarios to bring about His redemptive purpose. So when you hear about a virgin giving birth, don't be surprised. That's what God's been. He's been redeeming situations throughout history. Don't let that alarm you. And then we read continues David to the exile. Babylon. This is about 400 years. It says, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Then it fast forwards and it gets to verse 12 or 11, 12 and after the deportation to Babylon. So it bookends David to Babylon. There's this historical detail. We can find a lot of it in first and second Kings. Uh, Some of the names are omitted here. Again, that's not Matthew's point. He's trying to get to a theological reflection of God bringing forth his purposes, that through this king, David, and his lineage, lineage, God would bring forth a deliverer. And then we fast forward towards the end. In verse 12 to 17, this is about a 600-year gap. Uh, And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and then it goes down to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who again, who is called what? Christ. Good, three of you. Um, good. So, in all of it, God has been at work. That's what we see through these 14, 14, 14. 
1,500 plus years, God has been at work so frequently, even to this day, it is so difficult to see God at work. What is happening? And your own pain and your own difficulty and the, your own frustration, it can, or even from a, a you know, national perspective, a global perspective, like, what is happening? And yet God is always at work. He was at work then, and he's at work now. The long-awaited fulfillment of the deliverer of God's people, who is the coming Messiah, the coming Christ, has arrived, culminating in verse 18, where we read, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. So we see this buildup culminating in the fact that the one that has been promised for centuries, he, the Messiah, the King, the Christ, has come. So I want to drill into this, this language of Messiah because it's in these 18 verses that we read, I haven't read all of them, but you understand. In the first 18 verses, we read four times this word, Christ. Matthew is strategic in wanting to allow the audience to understand the significance of Jesus, who is the Christ. And so I want to drill into this, the promised Christ, the Messiah, and its impact for us and how that matters to us on the second advent the second Sunday of Advent. See, our understanding of this Christ, it shapes how we posture our lives. Our understanding of the promised Christ, the Messiah, it shapes how we approach life. Messiah comes from a Hebrew word which means anointed one or chosen one. And again, it embodies the hope, the Jewish hope um, of a coming deliverer predicted in the Old Testament. And so Jewish tradition to this day affirms five things about the Messiah. The first is that he would be a descendant of King David. We already talked about that. The second, that he would gain sovereignty. This is from a, uh, a well-known Jewish source. Uh, the second is that he would gain sovereignty over the land of Israel. The third is that he would gather the Jews um, from the four corners of the earth. Fourth, that he would restore them to the full observance of the Torah law. And fifth, to bring peace to the whole world. So to this day, Many Jews that are active in their faith would long to this day for this coming Messiah. A standard Jewish prayer uh, states this. It says, And Mayaman, which, which is Messiah, uh, I believe with a full heart in the coming of the Messiah, and even though he may tarry, I will wait for him on any day that he may come. They recite this frequently. There was a story of a Jewish man who was on his way, he was in a concentration camp, and he was on his way to a gas chamber. And some of his last words were the reciting of this statement. It's a reminder of the longing of the Messiah. So the Old Testament scripture go on to mention certain promises that the Messiah would bring forth. Wesley talked about this last week, that in Genesis 3.15, that there's a promise that the God threw as early as the mother of humanity, Eve, would bring forth one who would crush the serpent. There's baked into that a longing for this Messiah. In Jeremiah 23.5, we see a, a picture of a great political leader who would be the descendant of King David. On and on and on throughout the Old Testament, we see these. One, one in particular, uh, Daniel 7.14. 
If you could flip over to that in Daniel 7, verse 14, we read, And to him who is given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. There's this longing in the Old Testament, this one to Come. And this is what's interesting. As you, as you fast forward a little bit of Matthew, you can see this tension because all Jews thought that this Messiah would come and overthrow Rome. And so when Jesus came on the scene and he predicted that he would die, they had no palate for that. You can imagine the tension. Your expectation as a Jew, first century, all the disciples, most of the disciples were Jews. They have this longing for the Messiah to overthrow the rule of Rome. And then you hear Peter say, or you hear Jesus say to Peter, who do people say that I am? Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're one of the prophets. And then he says, but who do you say that I am? And then Peter speaks up. We know the story. You are the what? The Christ, the Messiah, You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, Peter, yes, and upon this rock, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Right after that, Jesus predicts his death. So Peter has just told them, Peter's just declared, you are the Christ. You are the king who's to deliver the people of Israel. You are going to dethrone Rome and you're going to establish an Israeli kingdom forever. That's what Peter's thinking. Moments later, Jesus predicts that he's going to die. And let's read that story in Matthew 16, verse 21. Such tension in this story. Matthew 16, 21 From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day rise. Again, just a few verses before, few verses, Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter took Jesus aside as a support system and he says, he rebukes him. Far be it, he says, From you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. His understanding of the Christ is far different than Jesus' understanding of the Christ. But he turns and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Goes on, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he'd let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man, another title uh, synonymous to the Christ, is going to come with his angels and the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he's done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in the kingdom. So we see the story of Peter declaring the Christ and then Jesus saying he's going to die and then Peter rebuking him and then Jesus rebuking Peter and then there's this moment where we see there's a shift happening in what people thought the Christ would be and who the Christ actually is. See, his death to Peter was shocking But Jesus, we have to understand this, Jesus came first 
to remove the power of the great dragon and to deliver his people from the great slave master, which is sin and death. He didn't... uh, he didn't know there was a, Peter didn't know there was a greater enemy than Rome. He thought that Rome was the superior uh, enemy. He had no idea that there was a greater enemy that was controlling Rome, and it was that enemy that Jesus came to destroy. See, Jesus wasn't the warrior king the Jews expected. He didn't destroy Rome, or at least not right away. He didn't bring political relevance to Israel. His plans were much greater. And when he rose, it made sense. To the the early church, it made sense. that The resurrection of the Messiah was shown to be a down payment that he would come again and resurrect this broken world. It began to, the, the, the dots began to align. So when we read these verses in Matthew 1, We're calling a a new creation, a dawning of a new day. There's this anticipation. The Messiah has come, but there's still more work to be done. There's this tension that he has come, that he has risen, and yet we still wait for the full fulfillment that is to come. It's wild if you think of it like this, that the Bible ends with a cliffhanger. We know the end of the story, yes, but the end of the story has yet to come. So some of the last words of the Bible in Revelation 22, verse 20, it says, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, or Maranatha. See, the long-awaited deliverer of God's people. He came and he will come. See, this is the story of stories. This is the fulfillment of our longing. This is what every Marvel movie is pointing towards. This is what every great movie is moving towards. It is a a shadow of the greater reality that the Messiah, the King, has come. He's laid down his life for the the princess who is his bride, and he's coming again to, to kill the dragon and to swallow death forever and to reign. That's why I love this quote from Tim Keller who says, that means, and I've read this before in Advent, that there is a evil sorcerer in this world, and we are under enchantment, and there's a noble prince who has broken the enchantment, And there's a love from which we will never be parted and we will indeed fly someday and we will defeat death. And we're part of a much bigger story than just trying to get a paycheck for this month. We're part of something much bigger than trying to figure out your retirement plan amongst uh, inflation and everything else. We're a part of something much bigger than trying to buy a house when interest rates are skyrocketing. Like we can get settled into the just, I mean, just the flat-lined, boring nature of life that we forget that God is on the move and he has not finished what he started. See, this is the good news of the gospel, that Christ has died, that Christ is risen. Christ has died, Christ is risen. He came to remove the curse of pain, the power of death. He gained power over death. And for it, we celebrate. But it doesn't end with saying Christ has died, Christ is risen. You know, because we get to Easter soon in just a matter of months, that Christ will come again as we look to the resurrection and the implications of that, that he put death to death and he will reign forever. And we look forward to that day. See, this wonderful story is is not just 
baked into some dusty, outdated book, but is baked into history, into a genealogy of real people and real time and real space that took in the same oxygen that we take in, that drank the same water that we drink into the story of stories tethered into time and space. See, Matthew 1.18, the birth of Jesus taking place, is a reminder that this is not just some random, outdated, fairy tale story, but it's baked into our history. See, the whole story of Jesus is stamped in real time, which is why a quote like this from C.S. Lewis makes so much sense as he, as he ties in the, the beauty of what feels like a fairy tale with the reality of a genealogy in history and how it comes together so perfectly. C.S. Lewis writes this, Now as myth transcends thought, incarnation transcends myth. The heart of Christianity is a myth, which is also a fact. The old myth of the dying God without ceasing to be myth comes down from the heaven of legend and imagination to the earth of history. It happens at a particular date in a particular place, followed by definable historical consequences. We pass from Balder or, or Soros, dying nobody knows when or where, to a historical person crucified under Pontius Pilate, by becoming fact, it does not cease to be myth. That is the miracle. We hear the story of stories that a Messiah would come and would rescue his people and would kill death and would cut off the head of the dragon and would reign forever, removing sin and shame and sorrow. And she gave birth. Like these two worlds collide perfectly. And that's the story we're in. And that's why Advent provokes us to live for something greater than the little puny lives that we can settle to live in. See, again, the story of Jesus, who is the Christ, is stamped in real time. Advent is a reflection of what God has done, and simultaneously, it compels us to look forward to what is still to come. Jesus, who is the Christ, he did fulfill, and Jesus, who is the Christ, will come again. And as his people... We long. We're called to long. As sojourners, we're called to wait expectantly. So as I close, I, I found myself challenged by this. And Luke chapter 12, um, there's a reference that Jesus gives about his second coming. And it's honestly just been something that stuck out to me, and I, I felt some conviction over it. I just want to invite you into that space. In Luke 12, verse 35, it says this, Stay dressed for action. And keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. So that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table. And he will come and serve them. And if he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. There's a lot there. There's a section that you might have just missed, that, that in the coming age, Jesus will sit you down 
and he will serve you. I mean, that's the king of kings. One of his first acts and him coming will be to serve his church. Talk about humility of humilities. Jesus will do that. But I, I begin to reflect on this text. Like, am I doing this? Like, that's part of what Advent does for us. Am I, are we as the church being like men and women who are watchfully waiting, knowing that the best days are still to come and not getting too comfortable here. And I feel for myself, we can be honest here, I'm like, I feel like I'm really comfortable right now. I feel like my, my life feels really good and I'm, I'm kind of comfortable with the fact that death has the final say right now. I'm kind of comfortable with the fact that this, the presence of sin is still here. And, and though I want to run from it, I'm, I'm comfortable with it. Some ways focus on eating and, and drinking and scrolling and worrying, right? It's okay to not talk. I'll, I'll just, I'll keep, I'll keep going. But I, I do really believe that we're in a fog. I do really believe that the best days are to come. Oh, the very best days are ahead of us. And it's within the season of Advent that we remember our call to wait. Christ, the Messiah, the King who would deliver God's people, will come again. Advent reminds me of this. The scripture reminds me of this. The spirit reminds me of this. The Messiah has come, and the Messiah will come. So as we close, we cry, come Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, come. Dragon slayer, come. Death, Killer, come. That day will come where death is in our rearview mirror forevermore. Tear wiper, come. Prince of peace, come. Wonderful counselor, come. Glorious king, come. Soul satisfier, come. Man of sorrow, come. Great shepherd, come. Alpha and Omega, come. Gracious Redeemer, come. Jesus, who is the Christ, come. If life is painful, he's not finished. If you've been betrayed, he's faithful. If you've gotten news that feels overwhelming, he hasn't left you. If you feel the weight of this world, he's at work. If life feels smooth and easy, don't get too comfortable. On the second Sunday of Advent, let us both remember together and live our lives with the conviction that Christ will come again. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a space to... Recall a space to remember. Lord, we need it how we need it. Oh, we're caught up, God. We need your help. We need your spirit to guide us and remember that the best days are ahead. Whether it's Black Friday or something else, we get so caught up in here and now and we confess it. Not that stuff is bad in and of itself, but it can really lull us to sleep. And I pray you'd remind us to be ones who are waiting posturing our hearts to the best days are to come. 
In Jesus' name, amen.